Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my conversation with Natalie Dillon, principal at Maveron. Maveron is a premier consumer-focused fund that invests in seed and Series A companies and empower consumers to live on their terms. Some of their investments include eBay, Everlane, and Allbirds. Without further ado, here's Natalie. What attracted you initially to venture capital and consumer investing? You know, I, I think like many people, I draw a lot of inspiration from my parents and, and kind of the, the values that they imprinted on me. Um, my mom's a social worker. My dad's an immigration lawyer. Uh, our dinner conversations revolved around social justice, not venture capital. So can't say I was, you know, as a young kid, really kind of gunning to be a VC. But I think they, my parents served as kind of a fantastic example of lining their work with purpose. Um, and from a really, really young age, I've always wrestled with this question of, you know, how do you create meaningful impact that is authentic to yourself? And I think like many in our generation, um, we, we think about that question. And, and I experimented with a lot of kind of different things, worked in nonprofits, worked in policy, worked in government, was really interested in urban design in developing countries, worked at a big, powerful bank, and kind of where I landed in kind of these series of, uh, of experiments was that it's, it's not actually the institution or vehicle um, that, that causes change, but rather for me specifically, it's, it's one-on-one relationships that I'm able to build um, where you can create, can create kind of real, real impact. And I think um, venture is this kind of amazing industry where one-on-one relationships with either other investors or founders that you're partnering with um, can have a, a huge, huge, huge ripple effect. And so to have a career that aligns kind of so perfectly well with that personal ethos was has been really special. Um, and then when it comes to consumer, you know, I think I've been someone who's just had a lifelong obsession around 
understanding people and trends and behavior. Um, and I think really kind of at the core of consumer investing is that, that deep understanding and, and empathy for, for people. Um, and, you know, to play, a, I think, a, a very, very small role in, in shaping, uh, shaping some of the zeitgeist and, and the values that, that consumers have is, is incredibly powerful. And yeah, I, I feel so, so fortunate to, to be able to do what I do. But it kind of seems to have this, I guess, alignment of, you know, b- these building communities and, and connecting folks. You know, so we so we have talked a little bit about Mavron's due diligence process and the founder checklist that you has, but I'd love just to do a little bit of a refresher since for those that just haven't had the chance to listen to those episodes, a little bit about Mavron and just walk through your uh, your founder checklist if that's all right with you. So our you know founder checklist one, um, you know, I think we place such heavy emphasis on it because at the end of the day. The founders absolutely central to to our decision making process. Um, they really kind of dictate the success, the outcome, the culture, even kind of the relationship that that we have for them. So um, it's incredibly important for us to have a very precise understanding of of who the founder is. And I think oftentimes you hear investors describing founders in fairly loose and generic terms, like this founder is very compelling or very strong. Um, but the checklist really allows us to drill in on, on what's so special um, and have kind of both a very deep and complete understanding of, of who the person is. Um, we have, you know, 10 attributes that, that we look for. Um, and, and they range in terms of kind of how missionary and kind of passionate they are. Um, how great of a recruiter, um, what sort of category advantage they have. Um, is there some sort of kind of unfair advantage from a data or IP or supply chain perspective? Um, how humble and, and self-aware are they able to know where their blind spots are and, and hire around? Um, can they toggle between being both you know, an incredible visionary, but also get down in the weeds and, and be detail oriented and how quickly and kind of fluent can they toggle between the two, how fast they work and how kind of quickly things can move. We look at communication skills across different mediums. So both, you know, presenting in, in person, but also in, in written. And then lastly, kind of how you creation um, for their employees, for their company and, and investors. So those are kind of a, a few of the, the attributes that, that we look for. And, you know, I think in our diligence process, I mean, relative to, to other firms, but hard to say without, without working there, we go very deep on, on founder references. And so, you know, as an example, one of the kind of most recent core investments that I led, we did, you know, I think over 20 plus references. Um, and, you know, what, what we're looking for is both kind of consistency, but also, you know, really trying to understand who this person is. If, you know, we're, we're signing up for a seven to, you know, 10 year plus commitment. Um, you know, we're, we're fine if there's, you know, some references that, that point to blind spots, but we want to be able to know what those blind spots are. And, and we hope that the founder also has the, the self-awareness to, to know where those are and, and hire around that. Um, so that's that's a bit about our checklist, but um, it, it's I think it, it really helps us be better decision makers. It helps us be better um, supporting that founder specifically, and and then you know even for our own hygiene, um, it's good for us to evaluate kind of what what we said at the time of the investment, and then look back kind of years to 
after and see you know how right we were of our first impressions uh, of that founder. I want to talk a bit about trends. I know when we were talking before, well, you mentioned subcultures uh, that you're focused on. So, what do you mean by subculture? What what are uh, and what are some changes in consumer behavior as it relates to subculture? So this is a question that that I love to to chat about because I have spent a lot of time thinking about the intersection of, of subcultures and, and technology and kind of this this thinking really started with looking back at some of the most iconic consumer brands. So you can think of you can think of Nike, you can think of Patagonia, Supremes is kind of a, a more recent example. And each of these brands had a deep, deep loyal subculture when they first began. So Nike, it was track athletes, Patagonia, it was mountain climbers, Supremes was kind of the the skater and streetwear community. And so when I'm looking at, at brands today, I'm looking at kind of, is there a subculture that they can capture and attach themselves to? And kind of the, the more kind of observation and work that I've kind of done in this space, I see that subculture-led brands tend to be one of the three, one or, or more of the kind of these three. So either one, they're a symbol uh, of that subculture. So you could think of Doc Martin Boots, you can think of Lululemon, you can think of Patagonia in its early days. Being a, if you're wearing or sporting um, these brands, it is a signal that you kind of belong um, and, and admire that, that subculture. Two is a connector. And so connector, you can think of uh, as connecting that subculture and participants in that subculture together. Um, Discord and Twitch are great examples of doing that within the gaming community. Um, And then third is an enabler. So a platform that enables a a participant within that subculture to further their interests uh, or expertise in that space. And I think Pinterest, um, a company that one of our partners, Kat Lee, used to work at, I think is a great example of this within the DIY crafters community and enable them to have inspiration and, and, um, and discover new ways in, in order to craft. And, you know, I think if you're able to be, you know, all three of those, both a symbol, a connector, an enabler, um, which I think frankly Nike has done within athletics, you become synonymous with that subculture. And so I like to kind of use that as a, a lens when I'm, looking at companies and to see, you know, is there, you know, either a subculture that isn't being addressed today? Is this company speaking to a subculture and and can they kind of tap into that cultural movement so they're not paying, you know, a crazy amount for Instagram and, and Facebook ads? And so I'm, I don't know, I'm excited. I think we're in a really interesting time where there's these kind of growing digital tribes that are living online that that still don't have brands that that really represent them and speak to them. And so I don't know. I'm I'm super bullish. I'm kind of this thesis, but excited to to find more companies that that fall into this thinking. That's really interesting and something we haven't really talked about this show. So I appreciate you uh, talking about subcultures. What are some other verticals in the subculture realm that you're that you're focused on? I know you mentioned in the gaming realm, Twitch and Discord, and you know, but I'd love to just kind of hear about what what some other verticals that maybe are connectors or enablers or 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 symbols. Uh, that you're that, that you're kind of looking at. So uh, you know, I'll, I'll cheat a little bit and give you one that's within our portfolio that I'm incredibly excited about, um, and that's a company called CoStar. And CoStar is a modern um, astrology app. And for anyone who is remotely interested in astrology, I highly recommend to download it. But I think you know, astrology has been one of these. Um, it's been one of these subcultures that is, has existed 
for thousands of years. It has this built-in language um, that I think also makes it a, a strong subculture. So when I say I'm a Leo, that means something to, to other Leos. And I think what, what CoStar has done kind of really masterfully is, is that there was this kind of deep and fanatical subculture within astrology. But when you looked at kind of the, the products that were out there, they were very dated. Many of them looked like they were built in, you know, Internet Explorer 1997, kind of these cheesy graphics and CoStar kind of really elevated the experience by by creating a, an app that was beautiful that that had personality that enabled you to you know see what your astrology compatibility was with with other users on the platform and i think they've become a, a bit synonymous with astrology they are both a symbol um, people you'll see people screenshot um, their CoStar notifications and post it on on their social media they're uh, a connector because you can you know, see other folks that are on the app. And they are an enabler in the sense that if you are remotely interested within astrology, there's a lot of really rich content that can educate you more about your sign you know, from a day to month to kind of year, uh, year's perspective. So uh, that's one that I'm you know, particularly excited about. And I think as, as you start to observe um, Kind of even within retail or other other industries, horoscope is certainly I think having a, a moment right now, and I think it's it's kind of this wonderful way to you know take emotional stock in your life in a very lightweight way that that people I think are, are desperately kind of in, in need of and, and fits a lot of the, the other trends that are going on within society today. Appreciate you bringing up CoStar; they're pretty popular on the on the show. Charles Hudson um, um, also was a also mentioned them and and uh, and talked about them. I know that our precursor is also an investor. I wanted to also talk. We also mentioned that when we were chatting before about future of social applications and and things that you're noticing about Gen Z. I wanted to know. I just wanted to pick your brain about that as well. Super fascinated with Gen Z. I secretly wish I was Gen Z. I think there's so many things that as a generation they're they're doing right. But from a kind of social perspective, I think one, you know, this is a generation that is incredibly creative. They're incredibly comfortable being in front of a camera. They see their screens as a canvas, very, very low attention span. And they grew up with celebrities that are very different than the celebrities that millennials or past generations. It's the, you know, YouTube and TikTok star that's filming in their childhood, you know, bedroom versus the glossy red carpet Hollywood stars that um, that millennials and, and beyond kind of grew up with. And so oftentimes in social, it's, it's you know, I think the behavior that, that we're seeing that really resonates with Gen Z is one, platforms that really enable self-expression and creativity, and two, um, platforms that kind of really encourage a sense of like vulnerability and, and authenticity and authenticity is thrown around a lot but you know this this can look like shaky camera work or graphics that aren't necessarily polished like the more unfiltered and almost the better and and I think you know this is a generation where um, they are kind of rejecting the conformity of, of millennials that we used to, you know, all wear kind of the same logoed polos and the same logos. And um, and this is a generation where being unique is now really the kind of global cool. Um, and so platforms that encourage kind of that ethos of, of being unique, being yourself, being expressive are, are far more resonating with, with Gen Z today. 
yeah, I was also talking with like Rishi Garb and he was saying how, you know, like the photo really has become the chief medium and it's making, it's not music. It's not, it's really just, it's really like the photo and making sure that, you know, wherever you are, you're, you're, you have, it's almost like if, if the picture's not taken, then it, it, it never happened. Totally. And there's even kind of interesting kind of way in the way Instagram is used with millennials versus Gen Z is incredibly different. And, and one example to kind of uh, that relates to your point on photos is you'll see with like teens today, rather than, than having kind of their full um, library of photos dating back, you know, three, four or five years, they'll actually archive most of their photos and only feature, you know, three, four, five, six photos. And those photos are supposed to really represent who they are today, not who they were yesterday or, you know, two years ago. Um, and so there is kind of this like intense focus on present and, and who you are today um, with the acknowledgement that who you are today may be very different than who you are tomorrow. And that's totally okay. And you can kind of clear your, your profile and, and be a new person tomorrow. And I think that that fluency between identity and being able to, you know, be a different person on social media today versus tomorrow is also kind of a, a core component of, of, uh, of Gen Z, which, which has been super fascinating to watch. How do you think about brand today? Because, um, and in charge of charging a premium on brand in terms of the, like measuring the value of brand, because now it seems like in today's landscape, it's, it's almost the easiest time ever to launch a brand, right? So there's so much noise as you described and getting past that noise is probably very, very difficult to do just because of the low barrier of entry. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I think it's, it's been, uh, it's easier than ever to launch a brand. I think it's harder than ever to create a brand that people care about, partially for the things that you, you've listed that there, um, one, I think there, there's so much choice. Two, there's been a lot of brands that have led with, with some values and then consumers have gotten smarter and um, don't necessarily believe some of those, um, those values. Um, and you know, I, I think it's, it's really, really hard right now when there aren't that many social platforms and mediums to advertise. Um, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Google take up the majority of advertising dollars for these brands. Um, there hasn't been a new platform or a new social network where, where people can, um, can advertise. And so, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Google are able to place kind of huge, can, can just make it incredibly expensive. And, and I think we are very cognizant of um, brands that are relying on unpaid marketing. And I think more than ever, you know, we're looking for brands that have true, true organic customer love because we, we've seen, you know, the, the downfall of becoming reliant on unpaid, unpaid advertising. And it's, it's like a steroid. It, um, it can really enhance growth, but can it also be very addictive and, and hide true part product market fit. What's one piece of advice for B2C founders? Paid acquisition can be a self-enhancing drug and to be very, very careful. It can be addictive. Um, and I think frankly, sometimes it really hides product market fit. And so while it may be very attractive to initially grow you know, your top line users, um, I think it, it can sometimes come at 
a cost in the long term, particularly in the brand and the quality of users and customers that you're getting in. Um, and so my advice would be to be incredibly, incredibly careful and prudent with, with paid advertising. And, um, you know, in the beginning, really just listen to your customers, listen to your customers that are really loyal and, and love the product and, and build around that loyal and obsessive uh, cult following and, and, and build from there because um, paid marketing can, can be a dangerous roller coaster to, to stay on. That's, that's really great advice. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Natalie's full episode.